0: Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tuvia Kopstein. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. This is your host, Tuvia Kopstein. And this episode is very special. They're all special, of course. But in this one, we sit down with Binyamin Kantz, who is the owner and the winemaker of Four Gates Winery, which is a boutique kosher winery, very sought after. And Binyamin has an amazing story of how he went from hippie California to a story of Jewish growth, really mostly by himself throughout the years. And I think you're going to like this episode. That's all I have to say. Without further ado, Binyamin Kantz. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast, and today we have the pleasure of sitting down with a landsman, somebody who is from Northern California, where I grew up, and I don't know if he's from there, but we're going to find out he definitely lives there, Binyamin Kantz, uh, the proprietor and and chief winemaker, or perhaps sole winemaker, of the exclusive uh, cult classic Four Gates Winery. Welcome, Binyamin.
1: Well, thank you, Rabbi. Happy to be here.
0: Did I say your title accurately, or would you uh, would you like well, to? Remember? Yes,
1: I am. I am actually the. Since I'm the only employee of Four Gates Winery, I I am the winemaker. I am the chief cook and bottle washer. I manage the vineyard. I work in the vineyard. I'm pretty much the only employee. I do have someone that helps me during the harvest now, um, but other than that, and I found some. Some guys to help me in the vineyard also this year but but for the last thirty years it's been a pretty much a one man show the
0: whole show Wow so you started the vineyard in let's say thirty years in the nineties nineteen
1: ninety one I planted uh, the first part of the vineyard. There were some vines here earlier that I uh, was taking care of because they'd been abandoned and those are the vines that I first start started making wine with uh, Chardonnay vines. And, uh, it, it went well. So I, um, I planted the entire hillside. It's not that big in the scheme of things. It's only three and a half or four acres of grapes, but, um, but it, it's enough to keep one person busy because it's a hillside and I can't use tractors or mechanized operations. So everything is done by hand, essentially. So that's why it's so wow. good work. Okay,
0: are, and you're you're in Santa Cruz, or the mountains outside of Santa Cruz, is that Santa correct? Cruz,
1: yes, the Santa Cruz mountains. I can see the ocean from the vineyard. It's mm-hmm. about six miles away as the crow flies, I would say.
0: From the city of Santa Cruz or from the ocean?
1: From both. Santa Cruz yeah. is on the ocean, so yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Okay, and are you from the area originally?
1: I was born in Los Angeles, California, in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. I came to the new campus of the University of California at Santa Cruz in nineteen sixty six and uh, and then I just stayed in Santa Cruz.
0: Those were the real hippie days, no
1: those were the very big hippie days and it's 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 curious that my life here I moved up into the mountains and my life here is sort of if you would have taken a movie of it you would have thought that I was the biggest hippie in the world milking goats and growing my own garden and um doing my art um but I never really was (laughs) deep down I never was at all a hippie I was a pretty regular guy it's just that I found myself in this setting and those were the things that that uh, occupied my life
0: wow okay so yeah i'd love'd love to hear your story episode it sounds like we're, we're getting to it piece by piece, but you told us that you you just you took over abandoned vineyards you came to santa Cruz you came to santa Cruz for college
1: yeah I came to santa cruz college and, what did you what
0: did you study in college
1: i studied uh history and your uh-huh. history
0: and what did you where did you think you were going in your in your career or
1: i didn't i did not have any ambition at all i had i took classes based on what i particularly found interesting at the time and uh, engaging mm-hmm. and that that uh, moved me in the direction of history and art history.
0: So art history so so you yourself are an artist?
1: I'm not an artist but I was uh, a calligrapher for many mm-hmm. years so I studied I didn't study that in college I studied that after college but uh, so I did all the crafts uh, connected with calligraphy, I, I uh, we had sheep here out in the country, so I actually got a sheepskin and learned how to make parchment, and uh, learned how to gild, do a gold leaf, uh, manuscript illumination, and and then so I did calligraphic work, and then I also taught it um, in the local.
0: Uh, area, okay. Wow. So the I'm just fascinated by this. I didn't know we're going in this direction. But um, how does one become a calligrapher besides studying and learning the craft?
1: Well, back in, in right now, the whole world of graphic art is much more sophisticated than it was then. Back then, there, there wasn't really um, the the re, there was a revival going on of all sorts of crafts. And calligraphy was one of them. Stained glass was one of them. And I learned stained glass and taught stained glass uh, briefly. And um, in England at the time, there was also a revival just beginning of calligraphy. There was a tradition of calligraphy in England, but there wasn't really a rebirth of it. Uh, when I went over to London as a student in 1969 70 um, I took a class with a man who was uh, was um, a calligrapher to the to the crown, and uh, also designed coinage for uh, for England. And back then, he taught just one. He came from south of London in the morning on the train for a long. I don't know how long it took him, but his name was William Gardner. And he taught this class of just, you know, odd collection of interested people. It was not like uh, there was a real constituency. It was more like, a, um, I don't know, not even as sophisticated as a university extension. Uh, anyway, that's uh, sort of that kind of gave me a start in the, in the study of calligraphy.
0: And that, that was a, there was a demand for calligraphy in a commercial sense where people wanted, wanted documents written up or artwork written up. Uh,
1: well, certainly in England there was. In, in uh, America, I don't know whether there was or not. I had, hadn't a clue. I wasn't thinking of it in terms of, uh, of a career or, or, um, a livelihood. Actually, the thing that motivated me was that the, the campus at the university, uh, is on the site of two limestone quarries. and Campus in Santa Cruz? Yeah, at the University of California, Santa Cruz was uh, built on the estate of the Cowell family who donated, who gave it to the university essentially after owning it for a hundred years. And they mined limestone and treated it and turned it in, you, you, it's, an, it's a product in the, in the manufacture of cement. And they treated it with uh, lime kilns. You have, to, you have to heat up the limestone and turn it into a, a different form of itself and then package it up. And they had a train track that ran from where the university is, from the lime, from the quarries and the lime kilns all the way down to the wharf at the ocean. And they would load it, load it up on ships and, and send it off. Anyway, I, thought well this limestone must be good for carving also so i um i thought well i'll learn while i'm here i'll learn to letter in stone so this calligraphy teacher i had in london uh he was familiar with engraving and all of that so i learned to to letter in stone while i was there also it never did uh apply to anything i did here i mean i did I did some wood carving and I did some stone carving, but it never, I mean, it wasn't a, <laughs> it wasn't a regular pastime or regular occupation at all. But anyway, I learned wow. how to do it.
0: Wow. I just, I just love looking at the background of your video here, the, the wooden ceilings. It just takes me back home. You know, my, my father took us to, uh, he had friends in the wine industry in Northern California. Do you know Ernie Weir?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I met so, him. I don't know him.
0: So more. my father was, um, he would go to the, they have some kind of of my father's reform rabbi. Uh, it was a Reconstructionist rabbi, ordained as a Reconstructionist rabbi, and he practiced in reform and, and conservative shuls. But he would, they would call him during the harvest to do some kind of I don't know exactly what it was, some kind of blessing of the of the crop. Uh-huh. And so we got to see, we got we went to Hagaf and uh, the winery in Napa and other other wineries and, and just that this rustic feel with the wooden ceilings just
1: uh and the stucco. Where did, where did and, you grow up? Uh,
0: in Sonoma County, in Petaluma. Oh Petaluma. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, the, well
1: there was another winery even closer to you, um back in nineteen eighty six, I think. How, 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 um Gone Aiden winery.
0: Gone Aiden, right. That's that was uh what was it? Big Winchell. Winchell, right? I got in touch with Winchell. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, no, he would love to talk to you about the good old days. I'm sure. Okay, got to talk to him. Yeah,
0: Connect, I connected with him on LinkedIn. Okay, very good. So now, now tell us. I, I have the we. I just understand. I'm understanding the skeleton of the story. I don't know the whole story. In the 90s, you started your winery. But you you had training in calligraphy and in engraving. What did you do with uh, between, let's say, 1970 and 1992? I was I doing.
1: Know. I was well. I was I was working out here on on the the ranch that I live on. Um, you know, helping keep the fences up and the animals fed, and um, uh, and also doing calligraphic work and teaching it. So that's what I was doing for. A number of years uh-huh. and um and the animals I, were the animals were a, uh, a crap. you were selling milk or you were just no, no, no. saying they yourself weren't, yeah. they weren't they weren't mine they weren't my animals uh-huh. but i met um i um in about i guess 1976 i would say i'm a, a chabadnik came to santa cruz uh-huh. he had he had he claimed to have been the first First person to go through the doors of the first Chabad house at UCLA. Okay. And uh, was very quickly uh, inspired to go off to yeshiva. So he, he went to Crown Heights and he finished four years and he was good at it. And so he stayed there and taught. And then he got a shidduch and his wife's family lived in San Jose, which is just over the mountains from Santa Cruz. Right. and uh And then there are various stories about how he got back to college, but anyway he 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 decided to finish college and Santa Cruz was the closest campus University of california campus a sister campus of u c l a was the closest campus to where his wife's parents' family was, so he came here and he even though he was an undergraduate at the time, he turned his house into a kind of a mini Chabad house uh, teaching and having people for Shabbos and Yontif and and I and he taught, believe it or not, he taught a Chumash class at the Reform shul. Oh, interesting! It was a kind of a rarity for for a Chabadnik, but he wasn't in any official capacity. And so I started going to that back then, and um, and and then started going to his house for uh, Friday nights. I would drive down. To his house and drive back home and i did that for a while and then a group of us who who uh would who met each other who met at his house uh would get together uh, on our own also we started a class and then when he left town he stayed in santa cruz for a couple of years when when he left town we stuck together so we had this little chevre um that got together for Shabbos and we had a little class, humush class that we patched together. None of us uh, was really any farther ahead in our Torah learning than anybody else. We just, we just bumbled along uh, with the books and did the best we could and, and tried to get people to stop by and teach us when we, when we could find somebody. Wow. So um, yeah, then, (laughs) uh, then that, group lasted a couple of years but it was so successful that everybody in it there must have been i don't know there must have been eight of us or you know kind of eight or maybe ten um everybody left everybody left santa cruz because there wasn't enough of a jewish community here for them to grow in so they went moved to philadelphia some moved back to israel um and i was the only one who stayed so my my jewish life uh went into sort of isolation at that point. Wow.
0: So what? (laughs) what? Yeah.
1: But I kept, I kept, uh, I kept at it. I, I, I had in 1980, I built a cabin in the woods and that was my first kosher kitchen. And that was where I celebrated Shabbos in the woods. No electricity running water from a spring and no electricity and an outhouse. And um, so I had candles burning was my only uh, light. There was a candle factory in Santa Cruz that went out of business. <clears throat> and they were taking all of their extra candles to the dump. And I happened to come by there when they were do- in the midst of doing this. So I got a two pickup truck loads of candles. So that kept me going for through the 1980s. <laughs> Great timing. Wow. <laughs> be exactly. For 10 right. years.
0: 10 years worth of candles? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Actually, wow. <laughs> Now this is now just just in case anybody's watching this and they don't they don't they don't know you don't have to uh, do Shabbos Shabbat on candle energy you can you can have your electricity on you just don't turn it you do <laughs> turn it on and off on Shabbos you just have it you just keep it on or you have you schedule it beforehand on a on a timer I had
1: a wood I had a wood stove there and a gas stove there a wow. little tiny little tiny gas stove. Wow.
0: so how did you stay strong i mean you're by yourself with no community how how did you stay strong with your with your that's an
1: that's an excellent question and i don't really have an answer to it i think it just was my temperament i was engaged enough i'd gotten off to a really convivial communal start with our little chevra and and a substantive start thanks to chabad and uh I just was engaged enough so that I I, um, I kept at it and I would invite guests up, I, you know, whoever was in town or whoever was passing through town, I would invite. And of course, it was an exotic experience going down to a cabin in the woods for Shabbos. Um, and I even had some sedarim up there um, a couple of times during the 1980s, which was pretty crazy because it was like a half a mile walk in the woods with no lights. So <laughs> even to get to the cabin, so it was quite an exotic experience. Did people
0: stay there for for the Shabbos or for Yom
1: Um kids? Some, some did. Uh-huh. Some did, but not all.
0: Wow, I wish, I wish I had known about this. I mean, I was I, eight, <laughs> I was eighteen when I left California. I wasn't Probably wasn't ready for that, but, uh, <laughs>
1: uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but yeah, that sounds well, like such an experience. Yeah, yeah my my uh, adventure in Yiddishkeit was. Um, was not one of a um an avid seeker and adventurer who's going traveling to India or to Israel or someplace looking for some spiritual enlightenment. I just encountered the tradition in an in an authentic uh uh version and just um steadily just tried one thing out and st- just to see if it would catch on, see if it was engaging, see if it was interesting to me, and it usually was. And then I just kept marching, marching along according to the pattern. Wow! And, uh, and you know, learned more and more. And I would spend yontif uh, in Berkeley usually. Okay. When I, you know, we didn't have anything here locally, so.
0: With Raya Feld, was he
1: there at the time? Yeah. 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 Feld I love, I love a yeah. I love Shalom. I love Shalom and his whole family. His, his son was just here visiting uh, wow. not too long ago. Son has three children in Israel and he's a acupuncturist and now a lawyer. <laughs> wow.
0: For anyone I'm, I'm sure most of the listeners don't know, but the Rabbi Hanan Feld, I think he started out as a as a a, a college soccer
1: superstar. Is that well correct? a college soccer yeah. goalie, yes. For <laughs> Indiana, Indiana
0: University of Indiana, Indiana maybe okay. Or I know Chicago, maybe something. Something. Yeah, he was from Chicago. Okay, got it. And he became close to Chabad, and then he eventually, I don't know the whole story, but he eventually opened up a Chabad um, welcome center or house in in Berkeley, not too far from the University of California. No, he wasn't. He wasn't
1: the. He wasn't the shliach in Berkeley. He was. A buddy of the Shliach. Okay. Rabbi Ferris was the Shliach, but the Feld's house was on the other side of town and, and they, every week they had multitude of guests and, and, um, and eventually along with the Noach and Tamar Biddleman opened up the base Medrash on the other side of town, which was a, a separate learning, um, institution, shall we say, um, accompanying Come on.
0: Okay, that was that was Noah of North Bagels. Noah's Bagels.
1: No, no, different Noah. Uh, different Noah. Okay, I know he was also okay. there. In- Noah Bagels is Noah Alper. Okay, and, and the base medrash is Noah Noah Middleman. He's now living in Israel. Uh, also, the whole Berkeley Chevron moved to Israel. Some <laughs>
0: <flow>. Okay, <laughs> it's definitely a step up. I mean, sorry, no offense to anyone who's there in Berkeley, but I think they no, all there's are, a big community. I agree. Yeah. Oh, there <laughs> is. <Okay.
1: laughs> Okay, so, very well, good. So, so the, so the, the, uh, the, there's one idea that connects my early days of winemaking and my early days of Yiddishkeit. I might say that during this time, during the 1980s, I was making Chardonnay from those few uh, Chardonnay vines that mm. were on this hillside uh, previous to my planting so as a hobby other... as a hobby yeah well not as a hobby well so you decide whether it's a hobby i um as i was becoming more observant i wanted to make my own kiddish wine and here were these vines so i i went out and i i actually in the early 1980s, I went out and bought grapes. You know, like a couple of boxes full, and we had an old cider press here for making apple cider. Then I used that to crush the grapes and press the grapes. <clears throat> Probably wasn't the best thing for wine making, but it worked. And I would just make these small batches of uh, wine for kiddish, and it seemed to go okay. I, you know, I wasn't very fussy. I was not a. <clears throat> I wasn't somebody who was. A, in love with wine or anything like a wine connoisseur at the time of I just wanted to make wine for kiddish and my standard was not particularly high my standard actually was um, if you drank the wine and didn't make a face then it was okay so the wine I was making I, I was okay I could drink it without making a face so that passed so anyway every no, year, no face test no, it was the face test. And so every year during the 1980s, I just made a few more gallons of wine. And then, um, in 19, in the mid 1980s, I started making wine from the, the vines that grow here on this hillside. And it's only Chardonnay vines. And in 1989, there was a huge earthquake in Northern California, the Loma Prieta earthquake. And, and that it was on October 19th. And October 19th is right at the end of the harvest season. And I had by that time worked up to 13 five gallon jugs of Chardonnay fermenting in my shed. Okay, That was my winery. And after that earthquake, I went to the shed and not one of them had survived the earthquake. All they thirteen smashed. All bumped into each other and uh-huh. broke. There was just nothing left so that was a moment i guess where i had to decide am i going to push push on or give up so i pushed on and then in 1991 i planted i planted merlot cabernet franc pinot noir and more chardonnay on four acres but the idea an acre for each
0: an acre for each type of grape
1: uh almost okay Approximately.
0: approximately (laughs)
1: Um, but there was an animating idea the whole time that i was becoming more observant and increasing my interest in winemaking and that was the idea that you could take something in the physical world something as mundane as dirt or even manure goat manure because we had goats up here Uh and through a physical process turn it into something that you could eventually use for a holy purpose that idea just infected my imagination and the process of making wine and especially making wine for kiddish and of the whole process of of um the process i should say of growing grapes and then of making wine and the process of becoming more observant just completely dovetailed with each other and reinforced each other. And uh, that was the animating principle of my life at the time. I was just I just thought, well, this is the best thing ever. This is, you know, you take something, you know, lowly in the physical world. It goes through a process of maturing in the physical world you get the grapes you turn it into wine and then friday night you're putting it in a silver cup on a white tablecloth and i thought and not only that you're you're making kiddish with it in which you are acknowledging the whole creation you know that god created a world and that he put us here to um optimize it <laughs> let's let's say that's a good word and uh so I just felt like I was just singing along right in tune with the program by being able to make wine and and make kiddish with it. I thought, well, what could be better? And I feel the same way now. Wow. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> has changed for thirty years.
0: That's really the that's really the secret of of life in this world, that is that we elevate we don't deny the physical we don't um you know we don't go to we say I don't say i am just a spiritual being and, uh, and 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 separate myself from everything physical we don't we also don't totally invest ourselves in the physical and pursue pursue worldly pleasures right to the exclusion of uh, of the spirit but we right. elevate we take this physical we we elevate it for a higher purpose that's that's the whole thing <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> that's, exactly so well, um, so over the years my um you know i learned how i learned the ins and outs of growing the grapes and i learned the ins and outs of making wine and and um yeah it's a it's a it's actually <clears throat> that process <clears throat> of elevation <clears throat> is in addition to a a good I- image of elevating the physical world for a spiritual purpose is also a beautiful um analogy of the the soul, if you think of, for example, my vineyard is is what's called dry farm um, I don't irrigate at all I don't have any irrigation set up the The reason for that is that at the time I planted the grapes there wasn't enough water we there, The well didn't produce enough water to to irrigate the grapes, so there was no point in putting in a, a irrigation system. I had to actually buy water in order to plant the grapes. I had to have a water, by the way, is very cheap, but the truck to bring it up to where I live is very expensive. So uh-huh. I only got, you know, maybe I don't, can't remember how many loads of water I got, but enough to get the grapes started. And um,
0: It's a whole tanker that has to drive up to the hillside? Yeah, a whole tank,
1: yeah. you know, like a couple thousand gallons at a time. And uh-huh. uh, um, But so my grapes are watered by... Um, Rainfall only, which comes from above, comes from Shemaim, comes from the heavens. So it's an image of the, the soul of man that, that it comes from above. It falls to earth, falls into the physical world, is absorbed into the physical world. And then it rises up through the, the grapevine. So to speak, our, our own physical selves, our body. And then we spend a lifetime of, of, of trying to produce a crop from it. We live in this world and try to make something of our lives. And, um, and, uh, whatever that thing is that we are making with our lives, we are doing it in a way, I don't know if this language will make sense to your listeners, but we're doing it for God's sake, for the sake of heaven. We're doing it in order to fulfill uh, the plan of creation, what, however we imagine that to be. And the, I guess the more you you make kiddish with our lives, because we are we are dedicating them to God's purpose to the extent that we are but that's what we're we're um we're meant to do and uh so the process of making wine and making kiddish with it and dedicating it to uh to the creator is analogous to what we do in the world with our lives so that's a little bit lopsided way of saying that but anyway
0: the, the That's the spiritual energy that's that's guiding what you're doing
1: yeah exactly
0: so tell me when you start the winery, when you started the winery by that time is there already um uh, more of a community in santa cruz or or in the bay area or a Chabad at least a chabad rabbi in the area uh,
1: in nineteen ninety one when i planted the vineyard there was not a uh there was not a rabbi in Santa Cruz Uh at all besides except for the Reformed Synagogue. Uh Um, And um, yeah, so I I built in 19... So I planted the vineyard in 1991 and in 1996 I started to build a winery and 1997 was the first wine with a Government approval and hashkacha from the rabbis, and a proper label.
0: I mean, it's kosher hashkacha is kosher uh,
1: certification. Kosher, yeah, kosher approved uh, uh, winery. Wow. Now, winery. how did
0: how did how did that and was it called Four Gates at the time? That
1: was the name. Oh, Four Four Gates, yes. And Does
0: Four Gates have a have a significance?
1: Four Gates does have a significance. It's uh, a little awkward, but to describe because it doesn't not completely conventional but before i planted uh before i planted the current vineyard i planted a previous vineyard on a even more distant hillside (laughs) in the woods um and uh in order to make it work i had to put a fence around to prevent the deer from eating the vines and the fence had Four gates in it. One gate went to where I imagined I was going to build a house one day. One gate went to where I imagined I would build a, a barn or a winery one day. One gate went down into a meadow, um, below the hillside and one gate went back into the forest. And in my young imagination, that corresponded to four gates of, of life. One was home and family. One was, uh, work. One was that corresponded to the gate going to the barn. One was agriculture going, that corresponded to the gate going to the meadow. And one was whatever you want to call it, religion or spirituality or philosophy or whatever. And that was the gate that was somewhat mysterious that went back into the forest. So that was pre four gates commercial four gates that Uh was original four gates so when i came to plant a larger vineyard and and turn it into a business i just kept the name Mm -hmm. and and by then i was more observant and so the name four gates expanded from the original idea to um any four spiritual openings a gate being a spiritual opening so all of the fours of Pesach, which include the four sons, the four cups of wine, the, um, the four letters of God's <laughs> name.
0: Four questions.
1: The, the four questions, right. Yeah. The four, uh, the four sides of Avram's tent, the four, uh, of Matsafonavanegba, the four directions of the compass, mm-hmm. um, there are many, many more. The four sides of the Mem of Mashiach. There, there are many fours. So, so the four gates came to encompass all of the four, four uh, the, all the fours of Yiddishkeit, all of the fours that represented spiritual gates or spiritual openings. Wow, so that's that's where Thank the you. idea came from. And very cool. <laughs>
0: so, Ben tell me about how how four gates developed. Did you have in mind when you planted it that it would it would remain a, a boutique winery or did you hope to expand it and then the next question on that would be tell us how it became what it is now which is is like a very exclusive very hard you know rare hard to find um you know goes fetches a very high price
1: <laughs> Well I I've, 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 I've never been...
0: tasted it I'm sure it's great but uh...
1: <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing when I started I was just going step by step and um um making wine i don't know if you've ever tried to make wine most most people have tried once in their lives to make wine or beer in college at least at least guys do um i know i'm treading on thin ice here to make any observations having to do with the genders but it seems like guys are more into making wine or beer than, than that's fair girls are. That's um fair. anyway uh The elements of winemaking are extremely simple. Uh, Yeast, which live in the atmosphere everywhere, like to eat sugar, and they um, excrete alcohol and carbon dioxide. So any mixture, anything sweet, yeast are going to start eating and turn into alcohol. So um, that's essentially the recipe for winemaking. You just take grapes and, turn them into grape juice and add yeast and they turn into wine. So the basics are pretty simple. Now to like everything in life to get a very, to get a refined version of that takes a lot of experience and a lot of practice. You've got to get all your ducks in a row and, you know, break it down, break the process down into the elements of uh wine and make sure that you do each one as conscientiously and carefully as as you can so that you optimize the the effects of each stage and get the best result you, you can so um so i started out making wine uh um i'd already made it for many years on a like a home winemaker scale and i guess i at the time i was confident enough that i could keep Keep doing it at that scale. And by that time, uh, the wine was good enough in my own estimation to be able to sell. So, so I, that's what I started out doing. And then, um, I, you know, I, you just continue learning. You just start, you're on a learning curve and making it every year. You learn the elements, which are the, it turns out that the most important thing in winemaking most important thing is the quality of the grapes. The, the quality of the grapes, which variety of grape and where it's grown and under what circumstances is the, the most important element of quality in, in uh, winemaking. Once you have the grapes, you know, the, the, there's a famous aphorism among winemakers. The way you make great wine is uh, you um, start out with great grapes and then don't mess up. Uh-huh. That's the recipe. Because the wine will in some sense make itself if, as long as you don't make any mistakes. So you have to learn what those mistakes, uh, might be. And you, you do learn very quickly what the mistakes are. Mm-hmm. But, um, as, uh, you get better and better, uh, at, at it, presumably the wine will get better and better. I was, God gave me, um, um, a huge, boost in this whole operation by placing me in a location that produced very high-quality wine grapes. I had no idea of that when I started. The Santa Cruz Mountains, it turns out to be a really, really good place to grow grapes, partly because of what I said before. The cool the cool climate here on the coast extends the growing season, and that's one of the elements of creating high-quality wine grapes. So that was one of the, the big brachas <laughs> that I got was that I was put without knowing it into a great location for growing grapes. That so, um, And one of the tricks that God played on me was that I'm not a wine connoisseur. Uh, wine connoisseurs, um, I mean, people joke about wine connoisseurs because they seem to speak a language all of their own that nobody else speaks and nobody understands what they're talking about. Um, um, but they do. They know what they're talking about, and it's a real thing. And some people have a very, very good palate, ways of tasting and smelling that that uh, the rest of us don't have. And um, so uh, I met somebody early on who had a very good palate. He didn't really know much about wine at the time, but he had a very good palate. So I introduced him to wine, and he introduced me to what quality was so we had a ever since then we've had a very good relation i could plug his podcast if any of your listeners out there are uh, want to know anything about kosher wine or want to check out any wine that kosher wine that they may particularly be interested in knowing what the quality of it is or whether it's worth it he he has a podcast called um Kosherwinemusings.com. It's not a podcast. It's just a, a blog. Oh, I mean, okay. Um, kosherwinemusings.com. And, um, you can, what's his name? His name is David Rocca.
0: David Rocca. Okay.
1: Kosherwinemusings.com. And you can go there and read articles about kosher wines and you can type in any wine that you're interested in and you'll see whether he wrote a review of it. And he also provides a, um, a great service to the wine kosher wine drinking public. in that in addition to scoring the wines with his, you know, whatever score he gives them and elaborate descriptions, descriptions that are so much more elaborate that you won't even need them at all because they're beyond, beyond, beyond. But anyway, <laughs> he, he gives a, a, a price to quality um, ratio. Mm. So he, he has a, he has a, an algorithm that he uses and he figures out whether the wine that he's reviewing is worth what you're paying for it. So, you know, it could be a, it could be a wine that costs a hundred dollars a bottle and he'll tell you it's a bargain at a hundred dollars a bottle, or he'll tell you it's wildly overpriced at a hundred dollars a bottle. You can buy a bottle for $20. that's as good as that one is. Anyway, he'll give you his best guess on whether it's worth it or not. At any price, whatever the price level is. So
0: that's a great resource. I had I had this conversation recently with somebody who um, also does home home wine growing, and he said he knows there's a difference, and he can tell there's a slight difference between the the twenty dollar bottle and the fifty sixty, you know. But he he said not enough to justify the price. <laughs> but this is this. It sounds like you It sounds like Rocca, yeah. What was the first name again? Bob. What was his name? David. David, David Rocco. David Raga has, uh, has figured out a formula and that's a very useful resource. So I'm going yeah. to, go, I'm going to check that out.
1: Yeah. The way I, the way I usually describe it, I, I think this is, I think this makes sense is that, um, there's hardware, there's wine hardware and wine software. <clears throat> the hardware is your nose and your palate. Mm-hmm. And you're born with that. And it doesn't really change that much over your lifetime. It is what you, it is what you got. And some people have a good one and some people don't. And it's whatever you got. Then there's the software. The software is your experience with with uh, tasting wine, and you can have a lot of software. You can you can accumulate a lot of information about the varieties. You can you can learn to recognize different varieties. Probably even if you have an average palate, you can learn to recognize Zinfandel and Pinot Noir and Cabernet and Chardonnay. You can, uh, um, but you can't. You can't, uh, you can't taste any more than you can taste. So one of the little dirty little secrets of the wine marketing world is that, um, Robert Parker will give a score of 90 points to a wine and then everybody will go out and buy that wine because they think it's a high quality wine, but they might not have the palate even to taste the quality that makes it good. So that's why it doesn't make any sense to buy wine, um, that you don't enjoy. You should just buy wines that you, you find that you enjoy drinking and, and stick with those. And if you're curious about another level of quality, you can, you can read David's blog or you, you can start buying a little more expensive wine if you can afford it and then see if you like it better and if you like it better then you can keep moving in that direction but if you don't then don't bother it's a waste of a waste of your time and a waste of your money if you can't so so anyway he's he's a he's a very good resource there are other people like him too yussie yussie Harwitz um Jesse's cork corkboard on the east coast david is on the west coast yussie is on the east coast
0: okay how everything is international, global. You know. yeah. <laughs> um, so, would you say that it is the it was David is your partner in quality? Would you say that it was it was that partnership and realizing that you had something very special with your grapes that that propelled you to the position of propelled four gates to the position is in now, where it's this exclusive product.
1: Yeah, 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 and also time. It turns out that it's no joke that time is one of the ingredients in winemaking. Uh, not all wines are meant for aging. Whether a wine is meant for aging or not depends on the chemical makeup of the wine. And the chemical makeup depends on the grapes, where the, which, what kind of grapes they are and where they're grown. What kind of soils, what kind of minerals, soils, fertility they're drawing on. Um, some wines, especially lighter wines like roses, usually and white wines usually, um, and lighter red wines, they don't have the the chemical compounds that age. They just don't have them. So aging them won't change the wine um, significantly. The wine will just get older and finally start to go downhill. Oh, really? But it won't won't improve with age. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the, the wines that do have those chemical compounds that do age and soften and mature, those wines will age and they will get better and they'll change dramatically over time. Um, and my grapes, for example, my Merlot, when I first made it, the first like five years I made it, I just thought this is not a very user friendly wine. This is not really, not really that good because it had two qualities which I, I found, I mean, as I say, not user friendly. Number one, the acid in the wine was higher mm-hmm. because I grow the grapes in the mountains and mountain grapes have more acid in them than valley grapes. The hot weather, um, burns up the, 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 the organic acids in grapes. It's true of, it's true of all fruit. I think it, fruit that grows in a hot climate will, will uh, be less acidic in a cooler climate, more acidic and people who in general, who aren't looking for a particular kind of wine will like a wine that's very soft and smooth and something that sticks out like the acidity will be um, uh, an, an annoyance. Right. The other thing is tannin. Tannin is what makes your mouth pucker up uh-huh. like sucking on a, on a tea bag. <laughs> like a Lipton tea bag or something, your mouth puckers up. That astringency is tannin and, um, and that, uh, is also an unattractive quality in a wine. You don't want a wine that's tannic and acidic. The thing is that acid helps wine last a long time and tannins mature into more sophisticated wines. Mm. So that Merlot that I didn't particularly like back in the early days, if you keep it for five years or 10 years or even 20 years, turns into a beautiful wine Ah, in a way that a wine that didn't have the acid and didn't have the tannin to begin with could never become. So as I say, time is one of the ingredients in winemaking. And if you, if you don't know a lot about wine, then you have to take it a little bit, you know, learn a little bit at a time and learn which wines age, which wines don't age, which wines are worth buying, you know spending money on if you want to put it away but at that point when you when you start talking about putting wine away and you know saving it for the future you're getting into the world of wine geekdom and not everybody <laughs> not everybody uh is meant to be a wine geek it's not <laughs> definitely <laughs>
0: that's even more rare you know, one one level is the people that appreciate wine and then the wine geeks is the level. yeah the no but
1: you're... yeah but on, on the shot level you should just uh, you know you should find what you you enjoy and mm-hmm. and if you want to you can learn about more there's lots and lots to learn if if you care about that but um, one of the mysteries that I've had to deal with and I don't have it ironed out yet is the is the uh, as I've mentioned I didn't do it very articulately but the, the role of wine in my spiritual journey is is quite clear and vivid to me the role of the aesthetic dimension of wine, that is to say, you know, the, the connoisseurship and the, the, the upper levels of, of the wine world is not so clear to me. I'm not sure exactly how the aesthetic dimension of wine fits into the spiritual world, at least for a Jewish spiritual world. It's a, it's a separate <laughs> question.
0: It's a separate question. Is it really? I mean, could we say, I know it's a total venture and there's no way to, uh, answer this empirically, but could we say that because you, you are a winemaker who puts your heart into the making of the wine and you, and you have, you see the, the, this whole, this essential Jewish concept of bringing the physical and out to out elevating the physical, bringing it out to its most, uh, holy expression that that somehow affects that somehow goes into the quality of wine and has affected the way that the world, the world that appreciates wine, appreciates
1: your wine. Uh, well, it it sounds nice to say that. <laughs> I don't know how one would illustrate it. <laughs> I've, heard people, a, I've heard people say that. Yeah. It's a Say that, but it's just because the idea is compelling. But whether it's true, um, right? It's, it exists <laughs> at least it exists in your imagination in one's imagination, but
0: um, I think a lot of this, a lot of this, you know, how marketing, uh, how, how a nice wine bottle packaging and a nice stamp right. and uh, and that nice description goes in, you know, how that affects the way we, we taste it and appreciate it. And a, a lot of, a lot of the imagination, you know, the, what the, what we project upon experiences is, 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 is affecting our experience.
1: Right. So here's, so here's the question. And I remember asking this a long time ago, if you have, Two bottles in front of you. Friday night, you're sitting at your table. Your wife and your children are all around, and you have a number of guests. You have two bottles on the table. One is a $100 French Bordeaux, and the other is Manischewitz. Which one are you going to make kiddush on? You like Manischewitz. You don't like dry red wine. Which one are you going to make kiddush on?
0: Manischewitz. If I like Manischewitz. Plus, plus. I know that the guests would if if I if I like that particular wine, I know the guests will appreciate the. We have to be, um, you know, more of a, um, take into account the the tastes of the, of of those around you, and they might not have the same refined tastes. So, I mean, but we're talking about a case when I like the Manichel with better, right? Mm-hmm. So, if I like it for sure, they're gonna like
1: it, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. So, so it's my better. opinion. Yeah, so it's it it certainly you can you can say there are two things there are two things from a from a, a Jewish perspective that you can say about fine wine on Friday night. Number one, there's the idea of Hidur mitzvah. There's the idea that you you have a mitzvah to make kiddish on Friday night, and you want to do it in the most beautiful way you can. And one of the ways you can do that is by making it with the best wine that you can get. Now, the best wine you can get is going to vary from person to person because we each value things differently. Right. Um, um, so you pick the best wine you can. Um, although I find that a lot of people, especially people who like wine a lot and are big wine connoisseurs, they'll make kiddish on grape juice and they'll serve the good wine for dinner be- just because they know everybody will like grape juice and they don't know that everybody will like uh, their fancy wine.
0: That's what I that's what I'm saying. I mean, there is there is a reason. I mean, in terms of we're not getting into a lack of discussion, but wine has a preference over grape juice, at least at least when it comes to the Mitzvah of Kiddush. Yeah, right. so we pick the wine that i'm mean, talking about my own family we pick the wine that i know everyone will appreciate and then if i want something like you're saying if, if, if there's yeah. something fancy a reason to bring out something fancier that's more subtle uh, to serve with the meal
1: and there is and there is also the the concept of owning shabbos that mm-hmm. that um we're meant to enjoy the sabbath that's god gave it to the jews to to enjoy and to um in part to enjoy Mm -hmm. so drinking fine wine if that's something you enjoy and as as i say there's a line here where only geeks cross but um if it's something you enjoy then it's one of the ways that you can enjoy shabbos um just like if you enjoy chocolate cake or strawberry tart or whatever you enjoy um so anyway so that's that's those are two ways in which the aesthetic dimension of wine figures into uh, Yiddishkeit. Um, in addition to the the uh, the muscle, in addition to the, the metaphor of winemaking,
0: elevating the physical.
1: Okay, amazing. Thank you, Binyamin. I think we we
0: covered a lot of great topics here and i really appreciate giving that you spent the time to give us this window into your world and what what you do and what and what you've contributed in, in your life and and i want to i want to give you a blessing that you should continue to make wine that elevates elevates the world elevates people's experience um it's the shabbos the yom tov and uh makes hopefully uh encourages a a level you know Wine affects the person. The wine wine makes a person happy. It, it brings, it, you know, when when used properly, it can really up, uplift the whole. It can uplift the meal. It can uplift the person's mood. Um, and so, so I,
1: yeah. So I, I'll I'll leave you with one, one, uh, one thought. Okay. There's a there's an expression in the Gemara, "Ain simta There is no joy without wine. It's a it's an abbreviation of a law of the bus. It's actually a bus of I think. But um, in any case, uh, one of the interpretations is the simple interpretation that you've just given that in in the Psalms, it says wine, you know, lads the heart, gladdens the heart of man. <clears throat> so on the simple level, if you think, you know, there is no joy without wine, Okay, you can you can see how that might be true, but if you think about it for a second, you think of Bubby and Zadie at their granddaughter's wedding, you think, Do Bubby and Zadie need a glass of wine at their granddaughter's wedding? And the answer is obviously no. Bubby and Zadie do not need a glass of wine. So how so what can it mean, Ein simple ailing? There is no joy without wine. So my answer to the question. Is, is more or less what I said to you before, that, that, that wine, in addition to being something we enjoy drinking, is a metaphor of elevation, of transforming the physical world for a spiritual purpose. And that's the (laughs) yin. Ain't simple. That's the wine that, um, that gladdens the heart of man is the elevation of the physical world. That's really what gladdens the heart of man. And Bobby, you saying the
0: wine is just a medium, it's a means to get is, to that elevated state, but one could get to the elevated state without it, and that's that's and right. Okay.
1: Bobby and Zadie are seeing in their granddaughter's wedding. They are seeing the elevation of the physical world into the spiritual world. That's what they're experiencing, and that's what that's what that's the inner dimension. Let's let's put it that way. That's the inner dimension of wine. Wow! Thank you. Amazing. So, I like it.
0: <laughs> I think it's true.
1: Well, anyway, I'm I'm very happy to be making wine and producing in wine, and and I hope uh, I uh, thank you for the bracha to continue doing that. But um, my ability to. Um, express all of that doesn't necessarily come um through the wine itself it requires uh somebody like you who is willing to sit down and and draw it out of me uh to help make it a little bit um more accessible
0: <laughs> happy i'm happy to do so
1: so anyway thank you very much and uh, and i'd like to give you a breath that you should continue in your work in your podcast and and also in your work with, uh, with the with um, the outreach um to be successful and to to find those connecting links maybe wine will be one of them but whatever whatever you you find uh connecting links to um for the for the young young people out there who who are trying to see how how thousands of years of tradition connect to to their immediate lives immediate daily lives so anyway amen Okay, thank you, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Thank you, have a good Just
0: listen to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at at podcastfellowship.org And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe
1: thrive.